The Pilbara Killings by Sabine T. Shetland, as read by Andrews Barr. Chapter 12 Commissioner Champion's office was located on the top rung of the gleaming new bullet that had just gone up to much fanfare, the tallest skyscraper in the West. <coughs> Almost perfect views of Rocknest Island and one of the best places to see from afar. Howard Champion kept Zimmerman fashionably late in his outer office. The entire South Wall was occupied with honorary university degrees and official photos of the great man shaking the hand of this or that international dignitary. It was a game of impressed recognition. <coughs> it was not like Zimmerman would have ever come to Champion's office but for the Naidu case, which had caused him so much embarrassment and pushed the star of his deputy. And of course the fact that Zimmerman's Jewish Champion didn't like them. Pushy people. No place for them in the executive of the force. The abduction of Chester Naidu had stuck in his chest like a growing tumour. The young son of the wealthy magnate left for dead with Champion, handling neither the case nor its aftermath particularly well. <coughs> Firing two heads of investigation and being forced to appoint Zimmerman's immediate superior, Kevin Monroe, all working night and day on their own and under the direction of Deputy Gray, to find the child near starved out at the old Wrigley farm outside their jurisdiction on the outskirts of Alice Springs. Gray's Joint Cooperative Interstate Task Force receiving international acclaim that big that it ran the first half of a UK panorama segment. The boy's family, so terribly grateful, hand-delivering an expression of thanks from the Indian Prime Minister with his most cordial wishes. And champion nowhere in sight. Unforgivable. It was not as if Zimmerman hadn't been here before either, but under much more dire circumstances. Sanctioned and almost thrown off the force, caught with an emolument received in error and doubtless argued to the hilt. Sent from a grateful journalist slipped some valuable information on Naidu's kidnappers. And what had Zimmerman received? A Christmas ham. How ironic for the kosher boy. But nearly big enough to take Zimmerman down. Champion was determined Zimmerman would not profit in any way from the whole exercise. A lost chance to get rid of the rising Jew, and now they're stuck with him. But there would always be ways in place to block the boy's further ascendancy. <clears throat> Life had been far more tolerant under the previous commissioner, the affable Freddie Harrison, although the old prejudices were all still fairly welded in place. At 48... Champion was likely to be warming the seat for some time to come, and he would outlast Zimmerman and his ambitions. God, Zimmerman thought, the least Champion could do is offer him a coffee. He'd been waiting nearly an hour, and then it would all be cursory. No time to discuss this or that nuance of the case. What he had come for wasn't the least indelicate and would surely rankle Champion's Catholic sensibilities. A presumptive Jew asking for the Archbishop's head. It was positively biblical. Zimmerman was ushered in by a deferential secretary and champion mid-phone call waved him to sit down. The morning's papers were artfully distributed across his desk and he was pulling hard against his power suspenders. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I have it all under control. We'll invoke the Police Provisions Act. Exactly. It's initiated in emergencies, but we can lock all the buggers up for five days without cause. Let's see how they go with that. It's like any rabble. Without leadership, they're nothing. He looked at Zimmerman and cocked his head back in laughter to show just how much in control he felt. Yes, let's meet for lunch. The birds would next week. My girl will get on to it. 
turning to Zimmerman, his manner changed. That was the Attorney General. We'll get rid of these fucking protesters in my streets right quick. Everything was always lickety-split with this guy. My streets, my city, my values. It was all personal. But for a populist, he was not very popular. Zimmerman laid out all his evidence against the constant interruptions. He seriously wondered how people like this make it this far with such a short attention span. It was necessary to go over some areas again, and again, and slower. The denouement was when Zimmerman threw the rosary onto Champion's desk. <coughs> Here, sir, just as predicted. Well, not exactly. I do hope you've gone over it for Prince DNA, he obligingly asked, tossing it from one hand to the other and ensuring its contamination. Yes, sir, done, clean as a whistle. Even the Archbishop must have wiped it. <coughs> that was suspicious enough, but this upstart was asking him to do what exactly? Arrest the Archbishop outside a papal conclave? Not, not quite, sir, Zimmerman reassured him. At least to question him. And how do you propose to do this thing? Champion looked genuinely concerned. <coughs> well, it would be like any force inquiry has the right to resist. The Vatican is, after all, a sovereign state, and we're only guests in a foreign land. All right, all right, I don't need the lecture. And if he asks what the charge is... He won't, sir. He's much too smart for that. We expect cameras to be there anyway. He's been quite big news around the Città del Vaticano and then some outside in the Piazza del Popolo. Zimmerman rattled off the important sights in a fine Italian accent and it irritated the homegrown champion. Famous for all the wrong reasons, Christ, has it come to this? You're not going to cut him off, are you? That would be hideous. Zimmerman reassured him even further. It is not his grace that we're interested in, sir. It is for his inside knowledge how he came by a principal piece of evidence in two murders. We hope he can lead us to the one he is sheltering. That is all. Well, good luck with that. Not one leaked word, you understand? You leak anything, and I mean anything. If any member of the press hears about this before it goes down, it'll be your balls in a public sling. Do you get me? <clears throat> he sighed and sat down, softening a little. Look, I know we've not gotten on along, but I, I expect the highest level of professionalism on your part and on the part of your officers. They are my representatives and reflect directly on me. Quiet, quick and clean, right? There's not the slightest illusion that any fuck-up wouldn't land squarely on Zimmerman's head. Nothing more had been stated, but it was the look on Champion's face that bothered. He looked like he'd been personally wounded, and the whole thing didn't sit well with Zimmerman. The reason for the meeting exposed, there was no longer any need for him to stay. It was a blameworthy office. They all revelled in it and one could mark the fall guys almost before the events. As Zimmerman left, Champion called to him to tell him that he would be going over every little expense, and that there would only be a minimum per diem allowed for international travel. Now fuck off, he said, closing the door. What a prick, and not even a coffee. The Barbadians had been surprisingly efficient overnight, and faxed back details of the only Quentin Andrews born there, on the 22nd of November, 1963, a child living just 12 hours, hardly named long enough to have been Mr. Tall, and yet the sort of thing that can destroy a family. Hull's Alan Quatermain, not much different, had died aged three years from rheumatic fever. <coughs> the funerals of the fake Andrews and Quatermain would have been far more complicated to arrange, but eminently possible to receive fatuous diagnoses of cancer from places like the Philippines. 
it would just be a matter of money. Cremations left fewer opportunities for exploration. Both death certificates signed by a Dr Aidan Quest, with no record of him at any medical school in the last 30 years. A prescriber number lifted from a script belonged to a country GP, dead nearly a decade. Nothing looked any different than it seemed, but each scab showed how much rancour lay beneath only after picking. It was the ordinariness of it all that was the trigger. Laura completed a not unworthy essay to hand in to the law tutors. She imagined the paraplegic teacher scooting off in excitement on his motorised chair, extolling the virtues of the new legal heroine. She fantasised about how she might become a positive sensation, a wunderkind, and lapsed into private congratulations, daydreaming of the possible adulation. She emailed a copy to Barnes and Zimmerman, but there had been no replies. Both of them were more seriously invested than she in the Jeffreys girl. Getting it wrong for either left far more at stake. The Premier's office called and wanted to clarify a few things regarding the upcoming trip of D.I. Zimmerman to Rome. Kiriglou himself wished to meet the delegation before it left and it was expressly suggested in the verbatim words of the Premier that there should be, quote, no stuff-ups. Just as there had been no stuff-ups when the week before government cars had raided the offices of a fellow prominent Turkish businessman and found absolutely no heroin on the premises despite all their intel had foretold. Or the time before that when the force had held an innocent hairdresser over the brutal killing of a society widow. You mean nothing like that? Zimmerman was just lobbing a small incendiary into the office of the most recent blunders that had generated from the highest level and wasn't about to be coddled by the Premier. He wants to give you the OIs, she replied. What? Operational instructions. I'd warn you that there'll be recriminations if you fall outside protocol. This is the big league DI. And there's no such thing as a good recovery shot if you go off script. Perhaps under the influence of her boss, she might have been talking in metaphors, but he knew perfectly well what she meant. The Premier kept them waiting even longer than the Commissioner. Who knows, perhaps the two collaborated on how much time is needed to piss off a real worker waiting outside each one's office. Magazine after magazine. One of the Premier on the front cover of an edition of The Economist looking suitably pleased with himself. Just after he garnered jobs for his old union, it was four years old. The Premier opened and closed the door maybe eight times or so in the hour they were waiting outside. His proud, angry voice... <clears throat> clearly in scalding mood, wafted out. There was no distinct words to hear, just rebuke. At least the man had passion, which is more than can be said of his predecessor, Iron Mike Brady. The nickname was for his bedfellows, the ore brokers, the miners who had put him into office and showed him just how easily they could take it away from, from him, turfing him out through the ballot box. The irony was that no one worth this salt would ever do the job of Premier, and it was a job that desperately needed to attract salt-worthy people. A revolving door for incompetence, a corruptionist's bedwarmer. Zimmerman had plenty of time to think on these things. Kiriglu, at least, had a good swell of support and the hot blood of a Turkish hawker at a bazaar. Everyone thought that the bluster was such an act and that inside was the heart of a maligned pussycat. But he could be decisive if needs be, and if firings were anything to go by, he'd rubbed out two attorneys-general and a fire chief without fear. 
When he guided them into the office, he was clearly in that temperament. 10am and the scotch bottle out and open. The smell of hard booze in the air. Well, he poked his finger in the air at Monroe. What's the plan? We have a warrant to search his premises, sir, Monroe answered, and we intend to kindly invite him in for questioning. It has been squared up with the Roman Polizia, a superintendent Provini, a woman, I believe. The last bit was an unnecessary addition, but it seemed to calm Kiriglou. Nice touch, he said, downing his third glass. <coughs> no one entering or exiting his office was ever in any doubt of his intentions or their clarity. Now look, he said, I want it to be seen that His Grace is cooperating with an ongoing investigation. Do you get me? Now here's what I don't want, OK? I don't want it to look like the Spanish Inquisition has just come down there, forcibly bent him over and shoved a red-hot poker up his ass just to get his attention. It was crystal clear, and in Kiriglu's inimitable style. And Plan B, should he resist? Kiriglu was always a stickler for Plan Bs. After all, he's been hiding out in Vatican City. It's like another embassy, a place to seek and receive asylum. If he goes for it publicly, it could be quite messy. Remember who this man is, Chief. He won't resist, sir, interposed Munro. It's just a few questions, after all. We're not going to cuff him and flatten his face against a wall. The Premier had used up all his patience and went against character and acceptance. Bottom line, I take it there is no plan B, he shouted. There are sultry days in Perth where people in the CBD sit round sunning themselves like lizards on rocks and nothing much gets done. Slow press days with the front page covered in cartoon characters and pictures of kids with cancer being cheered up by footballers. And then there are those momentous days which start out rather prosaically and finish up looking like the back end of a tsunami, flotsam and jetsam strewn all over the place with most of the common folk scratching their heads and asking how did we end up here. The day the city stock market dipped badly was like that, all smiles and courtesies in the morning and by day's end the wreckage laid out on the floor of the exchange with thousands of sail jets chucked in a room that looked like it had just been hit by an incendiary. And in the middle of it was the news that Pippin had taken his own life. It seemed too expected almost to investigate Maybe too much of a paradox that such a weasel would have had the guts to top himself. His cleaner had called the police just before they were coming anyway to collect him and bang him up with all the other charming sex offenders in the prison infirmary so that no harm could come to them. The kiddie molesters were apparently quite tasty meat and if the rumours were to be believed, everyone and their dog at the Cathcart Correctional Facility was lining up to sodomise the poor prick. It was something to look forward to and... Pippin had spoiled it for everybody by taking a few gulpfuls of Drano. Herbert Atwood did the autopsy with his usual aplomb, enjoyed it actually when called out from his Sunday pasta primavera. Nothing much to report with Pippin's gastric lining peeled off its moorings like it had been got at by a good scourer. There was a heap of blood in his esophagus from all the pre-mortem vomiting, a sad deserved end but nothing ever stopped the complainants on the same day filing their case against St Joseph's with the district magistrates. It wasn't much of a day for Hilary Carter either. Emails and telephones from the likes of the Sentinel's Tom Blart, 
who'd made one of his kamikaze 6am phone calls to throw Carter off his game. <coughs> Both the Inglesus and Hutchinson briefs had also been through to his office to state their claim and lay out their complaints. Carter was getting quite fed up without a peep from Teddy, even electronically, for over a week. He'd heard nothing since the subpoena had left his boss's office in such a shambles. There was no one left standing, apparently, to coordinate the good works the church was doing with its outreach meals program and the sterling soup kitchen. It was like all that charitable stuff had ground to a fine halt and didn't seem to matter any more. Rats deserting a sinking ship, Carter thought. If he'd imagined that that was the end of it, it wasn't, and the hits just kept on coming. The deputy chief CPA of Elliot and Elliot chartered accountants for the diocese had called with the news that over $600,000 was missing from the St Joseph and Allied Parish Pension Fund, a slow siphon to an account in Belize, and they wanted to know who might have done it. His initial tendency was to obfuscate. It was in his nature. His evolution was as a creature of middle management. After the initial shock, they both agreed that it should all be retrievable. After all, they were still church funds, and they would simply call up the bank but the managers there had steadfastly refused to give up any confidentiality. They were worse than the confessional. Carter mulled over it for a few hours. The fraud squad had to be called in at once. Delays would only complicate things, and at the end of the day, St Joseph's had nothing to hide. Carter had to arrive at the right course. If they decided to crack this themselves, he thought in the current climate of anti-Catholic hatred, and it all went wrong, by the time the coppers would inevitably be called in, it could break them. He rang Shrewsbury on his mobile phone in the middle of a Toastmasters workshop. He was just up to the part he had prepared on using the joke in public speaking, and he let out an inadvertent and very audible fuck to the astonished guests. Gathering himself, he explained with a forced smile that that was how not to do it. Chapter 13 Barnes rang Laura out of boredom rather than anything else. His news office had been overwrought with the financial crisis and Sue Conway, the journalist at the other desk, was on the Pippin case, so he didn't have much to do. How's the law going, he asked. He tried to sound upbeat, but things were slow and it was obvious that he just wished to talk. I don't much like it. Pretty dry. God, whoever invented torch should be shot. Yes, and in front of a crowd as it wouldn't do much good in private. Her voice, as much as her joking, cheered him up somewhat. I mean, I don't like the people much either, an amoral bunch, if you ask me. To stand up in front of a jury and plead for a man you know to be guilty is one thing, but to go like a rabid dog at someone you know to be innocent is quite another. I don't think I've got that killer instinct in me. Well, maybe it's not for you, love, but it's pretty early. Give it another six months at least, eh? He was saying the sort of things her father would have said had he been alive, and she appreciated the gesture. Changing the subject, I think we should do a follow-up on the Jeffreys Hughes story. You know, more in-depth than the one we did last month. It's still so incomplete, and I want you on my byline, a co-author. Really, she said with excitement. You just after a shag, then? And she laughed out loud. A mercy fuck, she added. Maybe. <clears throat> At least he was being honest, and she didn't mind the smell of him in her bed. So she agreed that she would come to his office, go over all his papers, write the introduction pick up some wine and cumbazola, and then go back to her place for a leisurely fuck. How does that sound? I like an organised woman, and he rung off. 
That article had better look bona fide, he thought, as he pulled out all the files from his cabinet. At least he had gotten the promise of what he had really wanted in the first place. When she arrived, she gave him some flowers that she had brought, especially to cheer up the drab office, and she planted a sisterly kiss on the top of his forehead. The other journalists looked on, making soft cat calls, and he told them all to fuck off. He knew that she had been sleeping with Zimmerman, and he had to accept it. He was much older, more weathered and much fatter, and he'd just have to share. No one likes that sort of thing. They got down to it over black coffee and pushed out a first draft up to a point with ease. It told of the young Jeffreys girl brought up in hardship in the remote, humpy areas around Parbidou, of her promise as a young drama student, cut short by drugs and glue, and then pushed back on track by the intervention of a priest who then molested her and killed her with, of all things, a rosary that he had kept over after an earlier killing of young Clint Hughes. They really had no evidence at all for that last bit, and it couldn't possibly pass editing muster. There was no family known, and the identity of the priest was a fake, or even a double fake, so that there could be no recriminations. Nevertheless, it still had to be run past the lawyers. But the girl, focus on the girl. She had more of an identifiable face than the boy, for maybe the first time the paper had taken a young Aboriginal girl seriously. Here she was, dead admittedly, but someone with dreams, a person. Surely that was the story. As much as ever wanting a killer or closing off the last tendrils of some case, it was still about the victim. Or was it more about the act? The violation which lay unexplained, the chance to separate everyone reading about it from anything that could have perpetrated such a thing. Was it more about the sameness or more about the differences? It wasn't the first time the issue had been raised, even if they were getting off track and wandering into the ethereal. Stick to the facts, Barnes admonished. We just don't know. We think the priests are the same person. We think he molested them and killed them. But that makes no sense. They or he wouldn't spend time molesting someone and then rip them limb from limb. We're missing it, and it should be there in front of us. You see why I'm not ready to go to print yet, quite apart from the padres whose trails have gone cold. We'll figure it out, she said. She seemed confident and stood up, stretching with a feline flexibility. Off, wine, cheese, screw. She said it like a scout leader. Say your prayers and brush your teeth. He was totally obedient. If there wasn't the upcoming Rome trip, there was the blasted Premier's office constantly reminding him about the rules of conduct and his boss, Monroe, who was struggling with all of his new responsibilities. And then there was also Laura to worry about. Relationship, no relationship. Sometimes the whole thing was not worth the, the hassle. His brother called to tell him that he was sick and Zimmerman didn't even know that he had a biopsy. Lymphoma, low grade. They should get it with the radiation and the new chemotherapy drugs. Zimmerman wished he had shown more compassion, but they had not been close even as young children. He told his brother that he had an important task to do in Italy, which they could not speak about. He rung off with a seeming indifference, a little more estrangement. He was not a family person, really. <coughs> not there for them when they needed him. He never had been. Look back in all the family albums, and he hardly appears, and even then he's always moving off. The rare photographs of him blurred and on the move. He hated the idea of his image being captured. 
Sometimes he'd look through the albums at a family Sabbath dinner and he simply didn't know most of his relatives. Who's that, he'd ask. That's your cousin Alison. You know, the one who killed herself over that boyfriend. What? When did that happen? Always the same answer. Years ago when you were overseas. Always off somewhere. Overseas. Forging a career. All that meaningless bullshit. He came home tired and fell asleep on the couch, waking at about 3am. He went to the bathroom and looked in the mirror, not recognising the thing looking back. Harsh, dark, raccoon eyes with their scimitars of sleeplessness. An intersecting wrinkle line spreading away from their corners. These things were new. Laura called early that morning to catch up and run over her tasks, but she really came over with an ulterior motive planting her satchel and notes down and climbing on top of him to coax an erection. She was young enough not to consider how much either of the men vying for her attentions might feel and certainly of an age to care even less. A dick was just that. She didn't need to layer it with a brain. Afterwards was always the best time. The post-coital plume of a hand-rolled cigarette pushing its wispy dying smoke doughnuts upwards to be chopped up by the ceiling fan the quiet coziness of it all, the greatest moments of honesty and the best time to think. It all circled back to the case. They'd both come to the same conclusion that there really was no way to trace either Quartermain or Andrews. The transposition of the A and the Q of their Christian names and surnames had not escaped her, nor of the doctor signing off on each death certificate. The passport office had shown the travel habits of each and both had been to the Philippines for short periods before their deaths. It was not an uncommon place to travel for the purpose of fabrication. Fake diagnoses and doctors were pretty prevalent, and it had been used by many as a place to die. Some would be caught in a traffic accident, or others maybe had jumped into the path of an oncoming train, that sort of thing, where there would be no trace. The false drowning, it seemed had been frowned upon as bodies that didn't really exist would always be expected to wash up somewhere. No, drowning was far less reliable. But it wouldn't be much of a problem to come back with fake documents attesting to an advanced terminal cancer. A matter of finding a body to pass off as one's own would have been a little more inventive. Ministering to the indigent in the parish might have given him just the opportunity, but clearly he would have needed help. There must have been an accomplice somewhere. The trick was not dying so much as staying alive afterwards. The obsessive care in forming a new name, a new identity and a new signature. Cutting off any and all connections and leaving behind the trappings of wealth and accumulation. The temptations to return and watch those who had cared about him or them must have been almost overwhelming. But he would have known that it was in such emotions where the mistakes lay. They just had to accept that if a life can be faked, so can a death, and there was no reason not to imagine that a Q or QA might still be out there, watching, calculating, dreaming, if that is how he weighed things in the balance of his next deprivation. <coughs> Zimmerman had a few days before his trip to Rome, time to see his brother and to heal the rift and a little time to catch up with Marinda. No one ever follows things through, he thought, either with brothers or with the family of a dead little girl. He wanted to see Marinda, to see if maybe there was something there, or maybe to sabotage his love of Laura. Come hell or high water, 
it would crystallise itself one way or the other. <coughs> Zimmerman hated hospitals, the look in them and the smell of them the pristine starchiness of their corners and the curt arrogance of the doctors who spoke to him as if he were learning-impaired. His brother looked paler than when he had seen him last, smaller somehow, caught up in the fluffiness of a large pillow or the turned-down sheets. He looked like a hungry little boy. Zimmerman hadn't kissed him for years, but he did so now in the finest European tradition. "'You look fucking awful,' he said. "'There was no need to beat around the bush.' They need to feed you up like one of those ducks that they make the pate out of, force a funnel down your throat. So what do you know? His brother pulled himself forwards with a knotted rope tied to the bed. It was there for weaklings, and he grabbed onto it like it was a life raft and he was floating out to sea. They say it's advanced around my windpipe, a big mass on the CAT scan, like a football. Tumours were always like footballs, he thought to himself or oranges. No one ever has tennis balls or ping-pong balls at tumour. I'm in for the drug treatment for the next four weeks through a permanent drip, and the radiation is starting tomorrow to last three weeks. They say I'll be fairly tired, but that's all. Well, you look like shit, and I thought someone who loves you should tell you. It was obvious to both that he had meant it, and he teared up a little, hugging his brother's frail, angular shoulders like an environmentalist embraces a tree. I love you, you know. I look up to you, even if you don't care a shit for me. It's always been like that. And his voice croaked with an unfakeable affection. His brother raised his hand to Zimmerman's and they gripped on tightly. He was frailer but still strong and he could prove it. A fighter. That's what everyone thinks is needed with cancer. He kissed Zimmerman on the side of the face and motioned for him to leave as the tears waved across the eyes of both men. I'll see you soon, old boy. Soon, I promise. And with that he was out the door. There were still a few days before the fateful trip to Rome and Zimmerman had the option of resting at home and collating his notes so that he could plan the tag-team showdown with Bishop Schistoff. Since everyone around him seemed to be faking things, he could, of course, fake a little illness himself and go back to the Pilbara to see Marinda. Why not, he thought. Catch up is all. He was on the case and she would should know developments, shouldn't she? An easy decision, really. The sort of thing that takes no thought and is as decisive as buying a pair of socks. The long haul to the Parbidou West estate gave him more time to think about her and what she could mean. For those in the hankering mood, perhaps a mood that projected love or lust or some such thing that probably didn't have anything to do with real love but rather had to do with an idealised perception of love. It had him at least figuring out that any impression he may have had, that somehow, somewhere, sometime, they might have been an actual couple, was probably a mad, harebrained idea. It seemed some churlish, stubborn play on his part at Forbidden Fruit, and it can be in those long, bumpy, crawling road trips that the mind wanders, wanders to places that are pretty foolish, closing one's eyes temporarily to the sun and the pruned double track of a neat highway to just imagine her on his arm, at parties, with friends, the normality of it all. 
and then shaking back with a jolt into a concentrated character as the car careers off slightly towards the opposing lane and bumps repetitively over the cat's eyes with a rhythmic warning sound, a sound that told him that he was being ridiculous. As if he ever needed any reminding, a string of loose, stupid relationships And it was times like this, lean times, when there was so little going on in his life that he reflected on these impossible women or on how he himself had been so impossible and immature. They all seemed so much better now than they had back then. And he forgot in that moment the legitimacy of those breakups. The thoughts of old lovers pressed their cases harder in that rearview mirror for something greater than a semblance of how they really were. The older he had gotten, the pickier and more finicky had been his tastes, and then in amongst a pool of women (coughs) with ever-shrinking charms, the law of diminishing returns, and he had to accept that marriage, kids, and all that schmear would not be one of the roads he was destined to travel. No one in his family would ever take him seriously unless he was somehow allied to all that responsibility, and he couldn't see a way that provoking all that instability in his life would somehow make him happier. He didn't get it. Perhaps he'd been wrong all along and that happiness and all that yearned for rooting into solid ground could only come from something like marriage, from kicking the hornet's nest and taking that leap of faith. The old argument tired him even more than the monotonous road and its double white line stripe. He slew off at the few kilometres before nervously pulling into the Jeffrey Street. He circled the car around across the small avenues a few times, passing slowly as he approached the house to see what was going on inside and then scooting off more quickly for fear of being discovered, the way a young boy might do infatuate with someone or something inside and forgetting the obvious nature of the drive-bys. After the third circle, she came out, having noticed it all from her front window, and she called to him. He pulled up the car against the curb, off-centre, almost abandoning it, after she had caught him in this small espionage. Hey, is all she said as she smiled, absolving him in one simple gesture of any explanation for his behaviour. She was happy to see him, and her face said it all as though for all this time she had been longing through the glass just to see his frame. Don't be shy, he thought. Tell her how you feel. But no one ever listens to their own advice, and as he walked up to her, he grasped her extended hand, drawing her nearer, a little roughly, and kissing her on the cheek. They stayed close together, and as he pulled away, she clung on to the waist of his pants, as lovers sometimes do, tethering him back towards her like a well-shucked oyster. He caught her up with the investigation, the priest's fraudulent births and deaths, the possibility of a second related killing. He asked her all about Lisa, her friends and her rituals, how she'd gotten on with all the other children and all the things that made up her life outside the idea that she once had been a wayward glue-sniffer. The spirit of the girl and all her girly pursuits. But there wasn't much there. Some fights with some of the kids, one of whom had gone down south. Marinda had never seen anything even vaguely inappropriate with the pastor, only his closeness and reliability in trying to get her off the drugs. Then there were the usual troubles at school, but the pregnancy and the abortion was something different. They thought it was a boy from another tribe, but all inquiry had fallen short and gone nowhere. It had been two years before, when she was thirteen, 
but Marinda never knew of any boyfriend. There were a couple of possibilities with two other local families, but she had so little to go on that she never felt it right to accuse. Maybe it was little Lisa's first time experimenting, or maybe not. Zimmerman jotted down the name of the boy and the names of the other families and asked her who he should contact. He would have to speak with them, even if it was a long shot. He asked of her life, <clears throat> the strategic questions. Where was Vernon? Off on a hunting trip with friends, caravanning and pig-sticking. She hadn't seen him in the last week, but he was at least as clean as he'd ever been. Zimmerman feigned interest, but he hoped that it might have been over with Vernon. His own inquiry had shown nothing of consequence on the man. Some misdemeanours and a little possession, but that was all. If anything, their marriage had been as solid as anyone could expect, given the recent turmoil. But he silently cheered up when she told him that Vernon would be away indefinitely. The formalities over, he sat alongside her on the couch and pushed her hair back behind her ear, running the back of his fingers like a wisp across the side of her face. She closed her eyes and they kissed lightly on the mouth for the first time, laughing with its awkwardness and then a more traditional, romantic one, each feeling the warmth of the other's tongue and pressing more insistently. He compared it to all those other times and it felt somehow strange. Maybe it was just because he was older or more the taboo signal that she was a material witness. There was something that wasn't right and he pulled away and stood up. It was too soon and this was not how he wanted it to go, he told her. If it went further, there would be nothing left to play with, no allure and decides he'd already told himself that this wasn't real. She too had dreamt of it all and had shown the most bona fide delight when he had returned and an incredulous surprise when he had pulled away just now. Standing too, she held on to his shoulder like he was a floating boy and she had been abandoned in untravelled waters. The look on his face told her, though, that she would not pursue it any more and like the passion kiss broke back into the promise only of friendship. He left as he had come, circling the house a few times to dispel the energy of the moment and to allow a cooler head to let him leave completely. He drove back to town and checked into the Cupid Motel, where at least he might not be recognised. The lighting on the top was in further disrepair, and the neon sign was now uninterpretable. On his bed was a thoughtful fresh bottle of cold still water, a mosquito burner coil with a box of redhead matches and an advertisement for a deep Thai massage. There wasn't much to learn from his meeting with the tribal leader of the Banuba men who had come down from the Kimberley's Fitzroy Crossing to live amongst the Matu and whose son Billy had been Lisa's friend. He had the brain no good, and when the old man pushed Zimmerman the letter from a specialist, he read about the kid's autism. Hadn't much left the house and was a bit of a family embarrassment. That was just the way they looked at it, and it didn't seem that he was the type of kid anyway who could have done something so violent. Just sat there in the corner and didn't say a word. But little Lisa in the goodness of her heart would come and spend time with him, talking to him and playing jacks and the like. And as for the other two boys, neither of them seemed to be up to impregnating, let alone killing her, and both didn't know much about the Ten Commandments or what a Decalogue was. He showed one the Hebrew letters just to see a reaction, and the lad turned the paper round and round like a cartwheel 
thinking of some strange piece of Aboriginal art he'd never seen before. Zimmerman had come to pry and open them up, and yet in the fondness of their spirits, they'd all offered him something. One gave him some bread dipped in egg and another oatmeal, hot steaming coffee and fresh onions from the garden. They were too generous, and he made his excuses. It was a dead end, and it didn't add much to the cause. Driving back, he taped his thoughts into a dictaphone, as was his habit. He stopped off and shared a beer with Nankervis at the shanty and ran over his notes with him. Nanka was suitably impressed and bowed to the big dog from the big smoke. I could never have figured all that stuff out, he said. He motioned for another beer. We traced all the psychos that had been committed from up these ways, but apart from the odd suicide, there was nothing outstanding that you might say connected to anything here. I made a file for you that you can come and collect. Zimmerman seemed reluctant and asked for it all to be sent express. Oh, you don't need to worry. Alma Lundus won't be there. Who? he said. You mean you really don't know? That girl that you fucked the last time you was up here. He said it so loud that the parents of some small children, looking at the local Aboriginal souvenirs, covered their kiddies' ears and rushed out with the well-I-nevers and the like. To be honest, I didn't quite get her name, and if anything, she did me over, as I recall. Zimmerman was being forthright, but Nankervis would have none of it. Well done you, then. I wish I could pull that sort. Must be something to be you, eh? He lumbered off and proffered his apologies. The wife's parents were in town, and he was expected for dinner. Christ, if I had a pension, I wouldn't waste a penny coming up to this dump, he said. And then he was off. Zimmerman pushed his suitcase across to the passenger side and drove back to Marinda's. She came out, kissed him and made up the spare bed on the fold-out. There were no questions as she laid out the ground rules, left him a towel for the morning, closed her door and switched off the light to get into bed alone. That night he didn't sleep, thinking of her lying just a few feet away in the next room. In the morning one of her sons came in with a hot mug of coffee and sat on Zimmerman's bed. The boy had made the effort and scraped a couple of pieces of scarred toast, blanketing them with a thick tote of jam. I'm Arthur, he said, pointing to a merit badge on his school blazer. A boy no more than ten with tiny hands peeking from the edges of hand-me-down sleeves. Nice, you must be proud. I'm Aidan, Zimmerman replied, trying to be friendly. He might as well use his opportunities whenever they came. Missing Lisa, he callously asked, as he covered his naked frame with his shirt. Oh, she was great. Gone to God, you know. He put out his hand and took him to her old room, pointing out her dresses and her craftwork, still unchanged since she had left them. There were all sorts of cutouts of movie stars and posters of Beyoncé and some he didn't know. Arthur gave him the threepenny circuit. This was where she slept. Pointing out the window over there was where she went to school about as detached as any guide at a Universal Studios tour. Zimmerman went in for the kill. Did you ever talk about her troubles? He coyly asked. WAPF Forensic Psychiatry 101 had all kicked in. Like what? said the boy, and then checking himself for his response to anyone in authority, he nodded quietly. She told me that she'd seen something, something no one else should know, a big secret. And I told her I had them secrets too, just as big, but she laughed. A small boy who's telling what he truly knows rarely looks direct ahead, and he stared at the bedclothes, playing with their pleats. 
if I tell you, I won't want to talk about it anymore. It's not for all them others or even for mum. They'll hurt me or muck me up. Only true things can put genuine fear into young people, and the child started to rhythmically rock backwards and forwards. What was it, Arthur? It's safe with me, and you won't have to ever tell anyone else. Zimmerman was in his best little boy's friend mode. Late, at night, maybe twice, she told me, coming back from her drama. She likes to play with all them dolls on stage and prance about like a girl. Zimmerman had to be patient and it was just time to let the child speak. But then Marinda entered after listening at the door. Her robes split around her upper abdomen. She pulled the fabric back across her bare cleavage, flushed and unkempt. This was not happy families and she was visibly angry. What gives you the right to interrogate my boy? She pulled at Zimmerman and slapped his face flush against its side, grabbing at his hair. He only calmed her with difficulty and wiped clean a new set of tears, washing an old wound. She sobbed in his grip and rendered all of her pain and that of Lisa's until they both had exhausted themselves. I meant no disrespect. It's just that Arthur came to me not the other way round. It was all in good faith, and he told me that his sister had imparted a secret. You know full well that I feel it's my sworn duty to find Lisa's killer. I'm doing this for you. His protestations came out poorly towards her, impossible seemingly to hurt her any more than to take not only her one daughter, but now also to pollute her son. It was as if her children had all gone to war and that she would somehow pay the ultimate price. It wasn't so much the finality of it all, but even accepting what she had lost, that nothing and no one could ever come back the same to see the smiling, happy faces sent off to their school before they could ever know of such things, that immutable innocence before some deprivation. It was criminal, she told him, a crime, and her son would not be the instrument of even more crimes. He smoothed down her hair and kissed her softly on the temple. What could he do but apologise and still get the information he so desperately needed to hear? She would take her time, Time to become his ally again and understand the only possible way forward. He left contrite, vowing to return later that day. And to sweeten a little, he told her that he loved her. It just seemed to make things that bit worse. There might be nothing more depraved than telling someone you don't love that you love them. It's like bearing false witness and it is itself a broken commandment. He could not decide whether he really wanted her or just her son's information and would concede in the light of day that it was a little of both. He reassured himself of the nobility of his motivations. He was a sworn police officer, for God's sake, and he did love her. Not maybe all that came with that love, but it was surely some kind of love after all. To be with her gave him the thought of pulling on a new instant family as his own like a worn jumper. It excited him. But what did he know of them? Their fun, their happinesses, their torments, their ways? Nothing, really. It was stupid, and it was the second time that he had berated himself, as one does in those inward discussions with the impossibility of it all. He had to detach himself from this madness and get the child's story. Surely that was all that mattered. There are days like that that go by clock-watchingly slow. 
He'd stopped off by the side of the road to think, staring a lot at the ground and wondering if it was possible to get deeper into a hole that he had so assiduously tried to avoid. He felt the inevitability of it all, a feeling like being in the final second of a car accident where all the ambient motion slows down so that every mistake can be witnessed and where still there's a powerlessness to do anything about it. He'd hurt her and now it damaged him in sympathy. Sitting by the bushland road on the wet grass, he loudly sobbed without feeling any better. It was not cathartic and he felt like vomiting, but it wouldn't come. <laughs> 